0: Good morning. The scripture for today comes from Colossians 3, verse 5 through 8. It's on page 984 in the Bible in your pew. Colossians 3, 5 through 8. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Hey, good morning. Uh, Let's pray, and then we will get into this, uh, these verses in Colossians. So will you pray with me? Father, thank you that you are faithful. Thank you that you are good. Thank you that we can come to you as a father who loves us, who wants to be with us, who has paid the price for our sin and forgiven us completely and welcomes us unashamed into your presence. God, you've done done all the work. So will you give us faith to believe that you are who you say you are? And will you help us to live as your children in this place? Uh, God, God, we love you. And we're thankful that you love us even more, that you are faithful when we are faithless. So God, I pray that you would open our hearts. Will you open our ears and will you help us to receive your word today? I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right, so next week, new series. This week, we are still in Colossians, slowly going through verse by verse. I'm really excited that we are in this section of Colossians because the first two chapters, maybe you've kind of sensed it, Paul can be really abstract. I love Peter uh, in one of his letters, he's like, hey, Paul can be a little bit uh, hard to understand sometimes, but just bear with him, he has really good things to say. Um, In the last half of Colossians, Paul shifts from this abstract teaching on the centrality of Jesus, it's not abstract, but it is um, a little bit less concrete. He's gonna shift, starting to move forward into, hey, how do these things that we've been talking about actually play themselves out on the ground? If the gospel of Jesus is true and Jesus Christ really has defeated sin, death, and darkness, what does that do to the way that we live together? And in a way, that's the question that we've been trying to answer in every single one of our sermons uh, out of Colossians, but what does the reality of who God is in Jesus Christ and what he has done have to do with the way that we live our lives right here and right now. So these last couple chapters, Paul is going to get really practical. He's going to talk about relationships. He's going to talk about ways of being and ways of living. And in our passage today, we find a list of community killers, actions, orientations, um, behaviors that kill relationships and communities and the call is to kill these things before they kill us or maybe that's a bad way of saying it. Uh, I actually think that is a bad way of saying it. A better way of saying that is do not let what is already dead kill you. Living dead to sin and alive to God is the real path to freedom, flourishing, and meaning in the world. And because Jesus has already destroyed the power of sin, we must kill sin in our own lives and in our own community. So our sermon today is about sin, and you're like, what's new? You guys talk about sin all the freaking time. Um, That's because sin is such a central reality and problem, not just in the Bible, but in our own lives. And we have a really hard time trying to figure out what are we supposed to do with it. Our personal histories probably don't help much. Uh, I know some of you in this, uh, in this room right now probably grew up in pretty fundamentalist, legalistic contexts where you felt like we were always talking about the sin of people who were out there, the threat of the bad things that people were doing out there, but never really paid attention to the sin that was actually present in our own lives, in our own community. So when you come across passages like this, it can be triggering for you. And you're like, I just don't really want to talk about this. Maybe you didn't grow up in the church and you are kind of wondering, hey, why, why does the Bible seem to pay so much attention uh, to sin? Isn't it more helpful to talk about the positive things, the things that we should be doing instead of the negatives, like it seems like verses like these really focus on? The reason that the Bible talks about sin so much. And the reason that we try to talk about sin so much is because it is a destructive power that is at work in all of us. None of us are exempt from the power of sin, the effects of sin in our lives. And we need to know how do we navigate it? How do we address it? What has God done about it? So in in this sermon, I'm going to try to answer three questions today. Number one is, why should we fight sin? Uh, Because the the command in verse 5 is pretty strong. Put to death what is earthly among you, what is sinful among you. Why should we do that? Number two, how do we fight sin? If we're supposed to do it, how? How are we supposed to do it? And number three, what happens when we live by the Spirit and put sin to death? So that's what we're gonna talk about today. Why should we fight it? How do we fight it? What happens when we fight it? And I think it's really important when we come to this passage to remember and see the entire flow of the book. So let me give you a little bit of recap or context if this is your first time with us or if you just need a refresher. My old teacher, Kevin Van Hooser, said that knowing God, the gospel of God, what God has done in Christ, and all things in relation to God and the gospel is to know reality. So our job as disciples of Jesus is to align ourselves with what is actually real. What what are we supposed to do? We're we're supposed to figure out, hey, what is real and how do we follow reality in our lives? How do we live not by lies, as John Mark Comer says, and live pursuing things that are actually true, weighty, substantial in our lives? And through all of Colossians, Paul has been pointing us towards reality. He's saying, hey, you've forgotten. This is what is most real. See Jesus lifted up. See him as the ultimate fulfillment of all of God's promises. See him as reigning supreme in absolutely everything in life. And the problem was that these teachers had come into the community and were subtly distorting truth and leading people away from reality. And we, we've, we've been referring to them as the false teachers. And maybe you hear that phrase, false teacher, and you're like, man, a big deal. People can believe what they want to think as long as they're not hurting anybody. The problem is that these teachers are promising power and fullness, but Paul knows that if we follow their path, we actually only end up with emptiness, destruction, and alienation from God and from each other. Ideas have consequences. Living opposed to reality has consequences. So Paul is reminding us in this verse, hey, you are free. Jesus Christ has defeated sin. Jesus Christ has defeated death. He has brought us out of darkness. He has made us his own. So don't go back to slavery. If you have someone telling you to move away from the reality of who God is in Jesus, don't listen to them. Do not comply with whatever will bring you away from Christ. So the first two chapters have been focusing a lot on things that are out there, ideas and teachers that are out there trying to bring us away from reality and devotion to Jesus. But... We do not need to worry only about people or ideas out there. Our verses today show us that the biggest threat to our freedom in Jesus is the sin that still lives in our hearts, that still looks to have control and dominion over you. Yeah, Jesus defeated sin. Uh, on, on the cross. Yet, sin still wages war in the world, in our families and in our hearts, and we have to, as John Owen says, be killing sin, or sin will be killing us. So uh, with that, with the idea that Jesus Christ has defeated um, all darkness, He's brought us out of the kingdom of darkness and into his own kingdom. Let's ask our first question: Why should we fight? sin. Why should we? Look at verse five again. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry so the shift uh, between verse four and verse five might feel might feel strange to you. If you're here last week, Mark preached on verses one through four. Let me me just read them uh, again for you. These verses uh, changed my life 12 years ago, Um, like literally. Um, and, And in them, Paul says, hey, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, For you've died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So we see this really positive, um, glorious picture that we are united with Jesus. Everything that is true of him is true for us. We're part of his family. Glory is our destiny. We are united with him and nothing can change that. So why do we shift from that reality to the list of sins that we find in verse five through eight? Um, But if we look closely, we see that the command in verse five actually flows directly from those beautiful truths that are in verses one through four. Look at the therefore, put to death therefore. In light of everything that I've said before in verses one through four, put that sin to death. If we've been delivered from death and darkness, if our lives are found in Christ, that means there is a new way of living in this world. And Paul calls this setting our minds on the things above and contrasts it with things that are on the earth. And it's the earthly things, That we find laid out here in verse 5. I think this is really important to note. Paul is not making a contrast between spiritual and physical here, right? He's not saying that we should only focus on spiritual things that are not physical, that are just abstract and up in heaven, and then anything that is physical is bad, and we should avoid that, because all of the advice that he's going to give in these next two chapters are really earthy. They have to do with actual relationships and actual lives that are lived out in time and space right here, right now. So when Paul is talking about earthy things, put, uh, put to death that is earthy uh, among you, don't think our physical life right here, everything right here is bad. He's talking about allegiance, where is your allegiance? Is your allegiance to the kingdom of God, the kingdom that Jesus Christ is bringing here on this earth right now, or is your allegiance directed towards anything other than God? Uh, your life, yourself, your friendship circles. Um, and and um, he's, he's, he's going to say that if we focus our allegiance only on the things that are in front of us right here, right now, ultimately it's going to destroy us. So there are two sin lists right here. They're parallel, each one has five different sins. The first list is sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, you can think greed or envy. And the second list is anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk. And what's fascinating about these lists is that these 10 sins are the sins that ancient Jewish people and the early church would condemn pagans for committing. Oh, those pagans out there are just the people who are sexually immoral. They live by their wrath. They are greedy all the time. They're led astray by all of their competing passions and desires. But Paul isn't going to say, hey, don't assume that those things are just problems out there. Those passions are living inside of all of us. They're waging war against all of us right here in this heart and in this room. So be on guard. Each and every one of us has to be aware that these are not just problems for those people out there. This is a word to us. This is a warning for us. So let's take a little minute minute to just look a little bit more in depth at these sins and how they are lived out. Um, The the first list in verse 5 mainly has to do with sexual sin and envy. Uh, So sexual immorality uh, in this context is any kind of sexual act that is outside a covenantal context of marriage. The Greek word here is the word where we get uh, the word pornography, pornography. Impurity, passion, evil desire, all point to a kind of unrepressed sexual appetite that values satisfying itself above anything else. It's entirely self-directed and self-focused, trying to find some sort of fulfillment or pleasure in whatever kind of action we can find. And in Paul's day, this is a direct attack and condemnation on the typical Greco-Roman sex ethic that is at work in the world. In that co- in society and in that context, um, it privileged the ability and power of men to find sexual gratifi- gratification wherever they could find it. So whatever you needed to do to whoever needed you to, you to do it to, you should do it because that's a good thing. And what matters is that you satisfy and fulfill your passions, otherwise you're gonna go crazy in the world. And so what this meant that was that men would typically end up oppressing people, women, who were less powerful than them. Really the only rule at play was you should not sleep with another man's wife. Why? Well, because that would dishonor and shame the other man, and you don't wanna do that. So Paul is saying, hey, that way of being, that way of thinking about other people, that way of using other people belongs to darkness. And it has no place in the kingdom of light that Jesus Christ is bringing. So Paul says, no more, be done with it. Put that way of being, thinking, and acting to death and live like you are actually sons and daughters in the kingdom of God. And so if that's back then, I think we have to wrestle with, okay, what does that mean with us today? Because we don't have a Greco-Roman sex ethic. We live in the 21st century. We live 60 years into the sexual re- uh, revolution. And this verse, these, the passages like this can really feel like the Bible is again trying to interfere with people's personal lives, trying to uh, suppress happiness or fulfillment. And the question that always comes up is, hey, what, what difference does it make uh, what people do in their own lives as long as it doesn't hurt others? And is it actually realistic in the year 2023 to follow a biblical sex ethic? Um, I, I think the problem with just assuming that the sexual revolution has won the day is the fact that it is failing to deliver what it promised. Like crazy, it's falling apart. We live in a world that is massively confused and divided about how we're actually supposed to steward our sexuality. Uh, Take for example, a person like Louise Perry. You might not have heard of her. Uh, She is a British journalist. She is not a Christian. She is a feminist based out of London. Last year, she wrote a book called The Case Against the Sexual Revolution. And in that book, she argues that the sexual revolution promised freedom, fulfillment, and happiness for everybody, but it has not delivered on its promises. Instead, it's ultimately ended up objectifying and harming people as we attempt to use other people as objects to meet our own needs. Listen listen to what she says. She says, this ideology flatters us by telling us that our desires are good and that we can find meaning in satisfying them, whatever the cost. But the lie of this flattery should be obvious. The lie should be obvious to anyone who has ever realized after the fact that they were wrong to desire something and hurt themselves or hurt other people in pursuing it. And so Perry concludes that the failures of the sexual revolution means we need to completely rethink our sexual ethics. And her conclusion, by the way, at the end is that marriage is actually a really good thing and that more people should do it because it's a safe way that we can steward our sexuality. And she's not a Christian. She has no theological background or training. She's not making her case from the Bible. She's looking out and saying, hey, is this really working? Is this really what we want to happen? If you need or want more evidence, just read about the impact that pornography is having on young people in the world, let alone older people. Uh, Look at the ways that families without fathers or mothers are suffering. Or the fact that happiness, mental health, and well being has plummeted in the West since the 1970s when the sexual revolution really started to get a hold. The problem with the promise of the sexual revolution and the promise of sin in general is that eventually the lie is going to collide with reality. And when lies collide with reality, reality always wins and we end up losing. And the reality is that every single sin listed here in verse 5 and in verse 8 destroy relationships. If you live with unsuppressed passion, if you live simply trying to fulfill yourself, if you live holding on to anger, wrath, malice, bitterness, it will not make you a happier person. What it will do is destroy your character, destroy the relationships around you, and rip communities apart. And I think that we've all experienced that. We've all experienced in the last few years what unrestrained sin, anger, envy can do in relationships. It destroys it. So Paul, when he's giving these warnings, these commands, hey, put sin to death. Do not give these kind of actions and behaviors power. It's not because he's trying to suppress freedom. It's not because he's trying to kill well-being, human flourishing. It's just the opposite. He's wanting to uh, open the door for freedom for all of us. He's saying, hey, these things cannot give you what they promise, Only Christ can do that. And Christ has brought his kingdom into the world, aligned us with it, brought us into his family. So why in the world would we still live in that way, in that old way of being? Do do you see how sin rips apart communities and hurts people? Why should we fight sin? We should fight sin because sin destroys us. It hardens us. It comes promising life and happiness and then only delivers death and emptiness. And God hates it. God hates it. Like it's easy, it's really easy for me to get up here and talk about how destructive sin is. Like, I've seen it. Like uh, you know, I, I read the news. You guys, you guys see see it also. What we what we tend to miss also by just focusing on the destructive nature of sin in human relationships is the fact of how much sin is an offense to God. God hates it when sin rips apart His world. Um, God hates it when we believe the lie that sin says that uh, we can find happiness and fulfillment apart from him because it's a direct assault on his character. It's a direct assault on his goodness. Sin says we have everything we need in ourselves. We don't need God. In fact, we'd be better off without him. And eventually, verse 6 says, God is going to exercise his wrath completely against sin. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. What is God's wrath? God's wrath is his loving commitment to rid the world of anything that would harm, threaten, or destroy his good creation. God's wrath is not his um, fuddy-duddy, curmudgeonly way of squashing fun. God's wrath is his love in action, ridding the world of everything that destroys goodness and flourishing and peace. So we fight sin, because God hates it. We fight sin because it destroys us. We fight sin because we don't belong to that way of living anymore. We've been transferred into a different kingdom in a different way of living. So how, question number two, do we fight it? If we should, if it destroys us, if there's another way, how do we live in that other way? Well, we see two answers to the question in our text. Number one is, we put sin to death, verse five. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And we put it all away, verse, uh, verse eight. No, verse seven, I'll just start there. In these two you once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. And those, the, the, that command, put to death, is a strong word. And it's really intentional, Paul is not trying to equivocate here. He's not trying to say, hey, you should really like, try to phase this out of your life. No, he's, he's saying, hey, you should kill this. You should go to war against sin because when it comes to sin, there cannot be compromise. It has to die. And that, and that, that phrase right there is where I think we can uh, go really, really wrong, really, really quickly because we hear those words and we s- assume that to do that, we just have to muster up the willpower to defeat an enemy that's uh, dominated us our whole lives. And so, you know, I've had this experience a million times. I'm sitting in a pew, I'm listening to this sermon. I'm like, yeah, there's that thing that I have not taken seriously. I really need to uh, do better. And so I start bargaining with God, like, hey God, if you just give me the power, you know, like I, I promise you know, I'll just, I'll, I'll stop doing it forever. Or if you help me out here, I'll stop doing it forever. I'm just gonna try. I'm just going to try harder. Uh, The problem is that the solution to sin in our life is not trying harder or increased willpower because we don't have the willpower or strength to kill sin in our life. Our strength is helpless against it. I think it's really helpful. Um, Leslie Jamison is a novelist uh, and has fought alcohol um, addiction for uh, most of her adult life. And in in one of her books, she's talking about uh, the way that her willpower was completely useless in trying to fight uh, the addiction that she was struggling with. Uh, Listen to what she says about it. She said, my willpower was a fine-tuned machine, fierce and humming. It had done plenty of things. It had gotten me straight A's, gotten my papers written, gotten me through cross-country training runs. But when I applied my willpower to drinking, The only thing I felt was that I was turning my life into a small, joyless, clenched fist. Willpower fails when it confronts something like alcohol addiction or any other sin that has a stronghold in our life. So if we're going to overcome sin, then we need something beyond willpower. We need something beyond just, oh, I'm gonna try better and I'm gonna, I'm gonna make sure that I actually get it this time. And here is the good news. Here is the central reality in, 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 this, in this text and in, in everything that we've heard so far in Colossians. You don't have to kill sin. Sin is already dead. You are not responsible for killing a power that is beyond you. The good news of the gospel is that in Jesus Christ, he has already destroyed sin completely. And so for us, it's a matter of putting in the grave something that's already dead and not letting it hang onto us like dirty old grave clothes or wrappings. And, and if you wanna see where, where that gets worked out earlier in the book, just look at the end of uh, chapter two. Paul is talking about these uh, false teachers and they're advocating some kind of strict religious adherence. <laughs> hey, you just need more willpower. You just need to try harder. You just need to do more things and then you'll experience fullness. What does Paul say about this? Hey, these things indeed have an appearance of wisdom, verse 23, in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. But what? What kind of value are they? They're of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. If then you've been raised with Christ, the whole premise is Christian, you actually have been raised with Christ. Christ. Seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. So in light of all of that, put to death what is already dead inside of you. Do not give power to something that is powerless, that has been stripped of any power Through the cross. Putting sin to death does not mean you're responsible for killing it. It means that you're responsible for living like it is already dead. And so, if you find yourself this morning coming in here discouraged because you know the sin in your own heart, because you um, sense the simmering anger annoyance, impatience with people around you, that nagging sexual desire or sin that you cannot just seem to shake, the message to you is that in Christ, those things do not define you. Those things do not have ultimate power over you anymore. You have been transferred out of their kingdom. You do not owe allegiance to them anymore. You belong to Jesus. And in Jesus, you are forgiven and you are clean. So leave behind that old way of living and walk in the spirit. How do we do that? I have three places where we can start. The first is put your faith in Jesus. The fundamental first step for living in the kingdom of God, for fighting, putting to death sin in our life is faith in Christ. If you are not a Christian here today, the last thing that I am telling you to do is that you really need to try harder to be better. The thing that I am telling you is that in Jesus, there is freedom that is available for you and faith is the way that you get it. You put your faith and your trust in him and you say, yeah, you have what it takes. Your cross has defeated my sin and I want to live in your kingdom. If you're a Christian, that's where we start also. We, we never start from a place of, okay, I just need to do better. We come back over and over and over again to fixing our mind on things that are above, that's chapter three, verse one, and say, no, I, I, I remember who I am. I belong to God. Uh, I, I belong to him, I'm part of his kingdom. Through Jesus, my sin is defeated, it does not control me or define me anymore, and there is a new way of living. Uh, so this, this, the command that we see that Mark talked about last, last week in, in verse two, set your mind on things that are above, is a mental act of exercising faith every single day. So every single day, we wake up, not assuming I need to try better and do harder today. Every single day we wake up and say, today I am accepted, I am forgiven, I belong in the kingdom of God, I am a child of God, and I'm gonna live like that is true. So that's step one, put your faith in Jesus, every single day. Step two, live by the spirit. Paul and Galatians will talk all all about this. Hey, we, we don't overcome sin in the flesh just by trying harder, we do it by living in step with the spirit. And remember in verse five uh, that Paul ultimately says that sin is idolatry, right? That's, that's right at the end. Put to death uh, what's earthly in you, all those sins in verse five, which is idolatry, w- which means that ultimately sin is a matter of misdirected worship. So how do you overcome misdirected worship in your life? You pursue proper worship, You pursue proper orientation, which which means that when you come here today and when you sing the songs that are on the screen, when you um, pray the prayers that are underlined, it's actually actively going to war against sin in your life because what we're doing is trying to turn away from idolatry, which is worshiping anything other than God, giving it ultimate worth, um, ascribing allegiance to it, and turning our attention and our affection towards the true God, pursuing true worship. If sin is a matter of distorted worship, then we combat it with true worship. We align ourselves with the glory of God. We fix our gaze on him and we set our minds to the fact that we belong to him. So we put our faith in Jesus. We live by the spirit. We pursue true worship. And then number three, we go to war against the remaining shadows of sin in our lives. Sin is a defeated power. It is dead and yet the remnants of it, the traces of it, the shadow of it is still active in in our hearts and in the world, which means we need to constantly be repenting, be turning back to God, be remembering that grace is stronger than sin, that Jesus has overcome all of our failure, all of our sin on the cross. And then we know ourselves, we know where we're weak. We confess our sins to God and to those who are close to us. We bring them into the light. And here, here, here's, here's what I would love. Here's what I would love. I would love it if we were a church that was not shocked when people confess their sins. Right? Because I, I think one of our biggest fears is like, hey, if I actually bring that out into the light, like, are people just going to be like, I can't believe that they did that. Right? We're afraid. We're afraid of how people are going to react. One of the most helpful things that I ever heard from a pastor was hey, I'm never shocked when someone confesses sin to me. I am never shocked. And I trust that the grace of God is good enough to cover that. So what if we were a people whose relationships were defined by that, that we're not shocked when we discover sin or darkness in the heart of another person? Like, why would we be shocked? That same sin is inside of us. Maybe it looks a little bit different, but that same sin is inside of us. So we don't meet sin with shock or disgust. We actually meet it with grace, and trust that the grace of Jesus is good enough to cover that and to change people. So um, we act like we actually are forgiven, freed, dead to sin, and alive to God. So maybe you need to have the conversation that you've been afraid of having with that person for a long time. Maybe you need to let go of anger. Maybe you need to forgive. Maybe you need to ask for forgiveness from another person. Maybe you need to sign up and go to our Men of Integrity group that meets uh, every single week to try to combat and battle sexual sin in our lives. You can find out more information on that on the website or you can talk to me or Owen Johnson about it. We would love to tell you more about it. We can take practical steps in combating the power of sin in our lives. So we put our faith in Christ, We live by the spirit and we go to war against the remaining shadows of sin in our lives. Worship is the way to freedom. And as we fix our eyes on Jesus and walk in his ways, we begin to see slowly sin's power fade in our lives. So last question, what happens when we live like we are dead to sin and alive to God. I wanna answer this in two different ways. Um, The first way is just pointing towards what we're gonna be talking about uh, starting back in October when we jump back into Colossians. Uh, Paul is gonna answer this question the rest of chapter three and the rest of chapter four, and it's a picture of beautiful, flourishing, redemptive relationships. The peace and goodness of Jesus begins to reign as the chaos and destruction of sin fades. So, when we put sin to death, we experience more of the goodness of God uh, in our own lives, in our own communities. We become more fully who we are already in Christ. So, we're going to be spending um, a lot of time this fall talking about that. Let me tell you a little bit about what happened to me when I realize the power of this passage for the first time. And I've told, I think I've told this story before. I've I've mentioned, I've mentioned at the beginning of the sermon, this this chapter changed my life. Uh, 12 years ago, I moved to Chicago from Kansas City to go to seminary. And I was young, arrogant, insecure, petty, trying to prove myself, prove my place. um, And I had no idea who I was, no idea who I was. Uh, and so I, I, I walked into seminary um, and I, like, struggled. I've, I failed and I, I, I'm not a person who fails. But uh, when, when I went to seminary, like, I failed. I almost dropped out. I almost just, like, threw in the towel and gave up. And I was confronted with my own weakness. I realized that I resented and even hated people that were better than me or that I thought were threats to me, somehow, threats to my well being, threats to my perceived um, thoughts about who I was, why I was valuable. I was completely uh, torn, torn apart by trying to wrestle with um, sexual sin, desire inside of my life. And when I read these verses, like God met me. And I realized reading the first four verses that, oh, I, I know who I am now. Who is Andrew Brantley? Andrew Brantley is a child of God. Andrew Brantley belongs to Jesus. Andrew Brantley has died to the power of sin in my life and I do not need to walk or live with it anymore. So instead of holding grudges against people who I thought had wronged me, you know, I mean, they didn't, they didn't do anything, I was, just, I was just holding grudges. I was like, oh, I don't, I don't have to hold, I don't have to do that anymore. I don't have to resent them. I, I, I can forgive them and I can actually live in relationship with them. Uh, I I don't have to uh, hate people who are better than me. Like I can appreciate the gifting that God has given in their lives and trust that, oh, I'm, I'm actually secure in who I am because God loves me and Jesus loves me. I realize I don't have to. Uh, use people to try to get something out of them. I can actually see them as someone who is created in God's image and honor them and love them and serve them not for what they can give to me, but because God loves them and God loves me. So like, let's let's, let's love each other the way that God loves us. And like, hey man, don't hear that and be like, I'm so perfect and awesome right now. Like all of those things, um, I still have to fight resentment. I still have to fight anger. I still have to, um, destroy grudges that try to lodge themselves into my heart. But I experienced a kind of freedom that Paul is talking about here. When I stopped living like um, these things had actual real power over me and started to walk by the spirit and focus my attention not on the other people around me, but primarily on who God is and what he's done in my life. And friends, I think the same can happen for you. Like if Jesus can change my life, turn my life around, if these words are true, if sin actually is dead, if there is a new way of living, then you can walk in it. And so I would say, do that. Receive the good news of the gospel today and walk in the power of the spirit. It is a better way. It's a better way. Living Dead to sin and alive to God is the path of flourishing and freedom in our lives, in our church, and in our world. And so, as we come to the table this week, we look at the broken body of Jesus and his shed blood, and we remember oh, in his death, sin died. In his death, I died. I'm forgiven. I have been raised with Christ. His spirit lives inside of me. It strengthens us. It reminds us of who we really are and who we are is children of God by grace. And if you believe that, you're a Christian, come to this table, take Jesus. If you're not a Christian, take Jesus. Don't come and take communion. Um, Don't try to make a commitment to be better. Ask God to make you new. Ask him to give you faith. Ask him to reveal himself to you and follow him. Take hold of him. And then after you've done that, come and take communion. If you are someone in here who finds themselves um, struggling, whether that is with fighting sin, whether that is with uh, pain or disappointment or something, anything in your life, we would love to pray with you. We'll have uh, ministers underneath these, uh, this window right over here to my left, your right, who would love to pray for you and love to ask God to give you more of his grace and to remind you of who you really are in him and, conform- and, and ask God to bring us back to reality. Um, so let's finish this service participating in true worship, directing our affection to the true God who is here with us. The way that we take communion. Uh, here at Redeemer is we are going to have three stations down in the front on the floor. We will have uh, two right here in front of me that are uh, a loaf of bread and wine and juice. The juice is in the glass and the wine is in the stoneware. Uh, When you come forward, you will just tear off a piece of the bread, dip it in whichever cup, uh, and uh, you can eat it uh, right there and then go back to your seat. We'll also have a single serve gluten-free station, which is right over here uh, to my left, your right. Uh, There are two cups. Uh, The top one, is juice and the bottom one is a gluten-free wafer if you would like to uh, participate in communion that way. Communion is open to all who claim the name of Jesus. uh, So come to the table and remember God's grace. Uh, Let's pray and then the band will uh, come back up and lead us in worship. Uh, So Father, thank you. Thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you that in Christ you have defeated sin. Like we don't have to establish our place. We don't have to fight harder. You've done all the work. You've brought us in to your kingdom. You've forgiven our sin. So will you help us to live like that's true? Will you help us to live like we actually belong in your kingdom and actually have died to the old reign of sin and darkness in the world? And God, we, we, we do need your grace. We need your grace right now, uh, because uh, even though sin is dead, like we're still feeling its effects. We're still all fighting with it, wrestling with it. And so will, will you come to us? Will you give us mercy? Will you be merciful to us? Will you help us to be the kind of community and church that takes sin seriously and also takes your grace and forgiveness and mercy um, really, really seriously? Will you help us to forgive each other? Will you help us to let go of anger? Will you help us to let go of idolatry? And will you help us to worship you truly? God, align us with your reality. We're here. We wanna follow you. We want to know you. And we need your help. So Spirit of God, come meet us. I pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. Come when you're ready.